When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now affiliated with the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from The Vault, we hear from fashion historian Ann Hollander, a longtime member of the Institute and former president of the Penn American Center. Hollander was the author of Seeing Through Clothes, Moving Pictures, and Sex and Suits, The Evolution of Modern Dress. At the time of her death in 2014, she was working on a book about clothes in literature, which is the subject of this talk. I don't know anybody else who could have brought out this crowd on this day, except for our favorite, Anne Hollander. <laughs> I'm going to talk today about uh, clothes in books, that is to say, clothes as they are represented by writers, poets, and uh, novelists to take note of how clothes being represented not in pictures manage to survive. There is a way in which you can't tell what you're hearing about, and then there is something that is very vivid indeed. So I'm going to start with the Iliad. I'm going to also give you only one kind of description of, the, of dress. This is going to be the woman dressed very remarkably in each case. This is a moment in the Iliad when Juno, Hera, observes that the battle is going against her guys and for her husband's guys, and she realizes that she has to get her husband away from uh, uh, urging the Greeks on so that her fellow can urge the Trojans on. There's a way in which she's trying to interfere with the war in this way. So she wishes, she decides to seduce her husband away from the uh, field where he, the mountain where he can see that his troops are actually gaining on the other side. So she looked down stationed high at her post aloft Olympus's peak. And she saw the sea lord blustering strong and so forth and so on. Her heart was filled with loathing. What could she do, she wondered, her eyes glowing wide. How could she outmaneuver Zeus the mastermind? At last, one strategy struck her mind as best. She would dress in all her glory and go to Ida. Perhaps the old desire would overwhelm the king to lie by her naked body and make immortal love. And uh, she might drift an oblivious wall, soft, warm sleep across his eyes and numb that seething brain. So off she went to her room. 
Now, uh, uh, she's, uh, we get it, she's going to try to seduce him, and uh, then uh, she can, her friend, sleep, can go and urge on the, uh, the others that will win the war. Doesn't work, but still. Off she went to her room, the chamber her loving son Hephaestus built her, hanging the doors from doorposts and so on and so forth. She slipped in, closing the polished doors. The ambrosia first. Hera clean, cleansed her enticing body of any blemish. Then she applied a deep olive rub, the breathtaking redolent oil she kept. A perfumed cloud would drift from heaven down to earth. Kneading her sieve skin with this to a soft glow and combing her hair, she twisted her braids with expert hands. Sleek luxurious, shining down from her deathless head, they fell, and so on. Then round her shoulders she swirled the wondrous robes that Athena wove her, brushed out to a high gloss and worked into the weft an elegant rose brocade. She pinned them across her breasts with a golden brooch, sashed her waist with a waistband floating a hundred tassels, and into her earlobes neatly pierced, she quickly looped her earrings, ripe mulberry clusters dangling in triple drops, and so on and so forth. Uh, then back over her brow, she draped her headdress, fine fresh veils for Hera, the queen of the gods, and so on. Now, dazzling in all her rich regalia, head to foot out of her rooms, she strode and beckoned Aphrodite away from the other gods. Now, what she does, of course, is ask. She's as beautiful as can be imagined, and she's a goddess. However, she knows anything might go wrong, so she asks Aphrodite for Aphrodite's girdle, against which nobody is proof. And Aphrodite says, okay, here it is. She takes it off, and she says, stuff it into your bosom. It can, nothing can go wrong. And sure enough, you know, she says, here now, take this band, put it between your breasts. You won't return your mission unfulfilled, whatever your eager heart desires to do. So uh, Aphrodite went home, and she comes down, and so on. Then there's a lot of sleep. So that's the end of that scene. It's her uh, wonderful earrings and whatnot that she puts in. A perfume cloud, needing her sin. Okay. So there is uh, Homer producing this marvelously accoutred lady. This is the first of all these that I want to show you or read to you, but it is apparently an unquenchable theme in literature. The adorned woman who stops the action while she is adorned or while we look at her or while the author describes what she has on. You find it again and again. Shakespeare uh, is, uh, of course, very, very imitate Homer if you can manage it. And uh, we have in uh, Anthony and Cleopatra the barge she sat in. So we have the barge with the, the, as a burnished throne, the poop beaten gold, purple the sails, and so forth. And then for her own person, it beggared all description. And so it does, because he doesn't describe it. He says, uh, he says, she lay in her pavilion, cloth of gold uh, of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outward nature, period. On each side, her stood pretty dimpled boys and so on, like smiling cupids uh, with divers colored fans whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool and what they undid did. 
not another word about what you really look like, you understand. So that's very clever of Shakespeare. But everybody is gasping and saying, oh, rare for Antony, although <laughs> we have no idea what she actually looked like. So now we get uh, on another note entirely, the Bible. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies, and all about how good she is. And uh, she seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She rises while, rises while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and so forth. Uh, she girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her, her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. Well, that's very nice. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. She reaches forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, and so on and so forth. Then she maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. And then she maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come, and so forth. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, that's the silk and purple, and let her own works praise her in the gates. So he's very grudging about what she wears. Silk and purple, that's enough. It's more fun in the comedies. And uh, here we have uh, Much Ado About Nothing, scene four of act three. And we have Hero, Margaret, and Ursula. And Margaret, the maid, is saying to Hero, the her heroine, I like the new tire within excellently. If the hair were a thought browner and your gown's a most rare fashion face. I saw the Duchess of Milan's gown that they praise so. Oh, that exceeds, says Hero, they say. But a nightgown in respect of yours, cloth of gold and cuts and laced with silver and set with pearls down sleeves, side sleeves and skirts round, underborn with a bluish tinsel. But for a fine, quaint, graceful and elegant fashion, yours is worth 10 of it. God give me joy to wear it, for my heart is exceeding heavy. One real description, very much in passing. Shakespeare doesn't really do it. I want to keep moving into the rest of the 17th century, where we have the tales of Charles Perrault, Cinderella, and Little Red Riding Hood. These are not folk tales, of course, but literary works. The story of Little Red Riding Hood is exactly three short pages. There was once a little girl in a village, the prettiest one that ever saw, anyone ever saw. Her mother was crazy, and so was her grandmother. Her mother made her a beautiful red hood, which became her very well, and everyone called her Le Petit Chaperon Rouge, or Little Red Riding Hood. One day, her mother, as we know, having cooked and made some cakes, said, go and uh, see how your grandmother is doing and take her these cakes. And uh, Little Red Riding Hood went immediately to her grandmother's, uh, who lived in a different village. And going through the woods, she encountered the wolf, who uh, was very eager to eat her. But uh, he dared not, because uh, several uh, butchers were there in the forest. And he asked her uh, where she was going. And she said, 
I'm going to see my grandmother and told her exactly where to give her this cake. The wolves took note of where the grandmother lived and rushed off, and she went off to her grandmother's house. The wolf got there first, and he knocked on the door, and my grandmother said, who's there? And the wolf said, I am your granddaughter, Little Red Riding Hood, and she uh, let her in. So he uh, went inside, uh, and it says here, Il se jeta sur la bonne femme et la dévora en moins de rien. And so, il y avait plus de trois jours qu'il n'avait mangé. He was very hungry indeed. Then he closed the door and went to get into, got into the bed where the grandmother was. This is all the, the second of these three pages. Knock, 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 who's there? And she said, and he, she said, it's uh, votre fille, le petit chaperon rouge qui vous apporte une galette. And the wolf cried out, oh, yes. Pulled the latch, uh, and uh, she went right in. And the wolf watched her come in and said, put the cake and the uh, pot of butter over there and come and get into the bed with me. And Little Red Riding Hood got undressed and uh, got into the bed where she was very much astonished to see how her grandmother was made uh, underneath her uh, nightgown and said, my goodness, don't you have big arms? It's to embrace you better. My goodness, don't you have great legs? It's to uh, run better. Oh, don't you have big ears? It's to hear you better, my dear. My grandmother, how big eyes you have to see you better. And what big teeth, and it's for eating you. And saying this, the méchant roux se jeta sur le petit chaperon rouge et la mangea. Very uh, elevating, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> anyway, that's the end. I have always noticed there is no reason for the redness of Little Red Riding Hood's costume. I used to think that you'd find that out if you found the Perrault, and I found the Perrault. Not a word about the redness. That's the 17th century. In the 18th, however, I have a, a real prize for you. This is a section of that great work, Clarissa, which has uh, letters, of course, only, undertakes the dreadful seduction of this glorious virgin. And so we have the letter that is written by Loveless, the villain and hero, to his friend and says, expect here a faint sketch of her admirable person with her dress, and then a lot about her flesh and the ringlets of her shining hair and so on, need, needing neither art nor powder. Her headdress was a Brussels lace mob, peculiarly adapted to the charming air and turn of her features. A sky blue ribbon illustrated that, but although the weather was somewhat sharp, she had not on either hat or hood. Besides that, she loves to use herself heartily by means, by which means by a temperance truly exemplary. Uh, she is allowed to have given high health and vigor to an originally tender constitution. She seems to have intended to show me she was determined not to go out, in other words. Her morning gown was a pale primrose-colored soie, that's peau de soie. The cuffs and robings curiously embroidered by the fingers of this clever, charming arachne in a running pattern of violets in their leaves. You can imagine this correspondent getting somewhat bored by this. The light in the flowered silver, gold in the leaves. A pair of diamond snaps in her ears. A white handkerchief wrought by the same inimitable fingers. Concealed, oh, 
Belford, what still more inimitable beauties did it not conceal? And I saw all the way we rode the bounding heart by its throbbing motions. Her ruffles were the same as her mob, her apron a flowered lawn, her coat, that's a petticoat, white satin, quilted, blue satin, her shoes, braided with the same color, without lace. I mean, this is really amazing. For what need has the prettiest foot in the world of ornament? Neat buckles in them. On her charming arms, a pair of black velvet glove-like muffs of her own invention, for she makes and gives fashions as she pleases. Her hands, velvet of themselves, thus uncovered, the freer to be grasped by those of her adorer. There's more about this encounter, but uh, meanwhile, poor Belford has had to spend minutes reading about her clothes, and this is all in aid of pleasing the public, no doubt, generally female, that I believe he was aiming this book at, and who all wanted, he thought, to have descriptions of what everybody wore. And there are a lot of other descriptions in the novel about what everybody else wore, too, all of them girls in various kinds of dress. Now, in that same century, at the other end, we have Mansfield Park. Jane Austen never gives the description of anybody's clothing whatsoever. The only descriptions of clothing in Jane Austen are given by a character about another character or to another character. She has sometimes the, the narrator or a protagonist talk about somebody else's dress, but she herself does not, in her authorial role, ever give a description of what anyone has on. It's all part of the character that is perceiving it that uh, she writes. The scene I'm interested in is in, uh, in Mansfield Park, which is a very complicated book. And we have Edmund, the stuffy man, whom Fanny, the stuffy girl, is going to fall in love with and marry. And we're all glad they're pairing off because both of them are a little unbearable and all the interesting characters are not the principal ones. So we're glad they get together and we know they will. Now I must look at you, Fanny, said Edmund, with the kind of smile of an affectionate brother and tell you how I like you, and as well as I can judge by this light, you look very nicely indeed. What have you got on? The new dress that my uncle was so good as to give me on my cousin's marriage. I hope it is not too fine, but I thought I ought to wear it as soon as I could, and so on and so forth. Edmund, a woman can never be too fine while she is all in white. No, I see no finery about you, nothing but what is perfectly proper. Your gown seems very pretty. I like these glossy spots. Has not Miss Crawford a gown something like that? Poor Fanny realizes that her Edmund that she sighs for is much more taken by Miss Crawford anyway, so it doesn't do her any good to have her dress admired if it is also compared to Miss Crawford's. That's the end of that scene entirely, but it is very striking. A woman can never be too fine when she wears white. There's a little principle in there. All right, so much for Jane. Here's Werther by Goethe. 
And this is a famous scene. I climbed out of the coach. The maid who came to the gate asked us to wait a moment. Madame Mademoiselle Lutchen would soon be down. He's taking this girl to a party. He's never seen her before, but he's promised to pick her up en route. When I came in, I saw the most charming scene I ever had in my life beheld. In the entrance hall, six children between the ages of 11 and 2 swarming around a handsome young girl of medium height who wore a simple white dress with pink bows on her arms and breasts. And that's it. She wears that, and he never has it out of his head, and he remembers it on his deathbed. It is the dress for anyone who wants to be infinitely attractive to wear. And the white dress with the pink bows, he remembers all the way through until he dies. So it's a lesson for anybody reading that you can wear a white dress with pink bows and it will have that kind of an effect. I don't know if anybody followed it. 1774, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park was 1814. Clarissa, 1747. Here's Hemingway, the sun also rises. He wore what used to be called polo shirts at school and may be called that still, but he was not professionally youthful. This is 1925. A hundred pages later, he lay there in his white shirt on the bed, in the dark, his polo shirt, the polo shirt. That's all about that. At any rate, <laughs> this is modern life. You need only uh, three words instead of uh, three stanzas. Next, the great Gatsby. There's this great notice about Jordan Baker, the infinitely attractive heroine. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment and followed the butler towards the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress, all her dresses, like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses in them on clean, crisp mornings. That's pretty good too. Yes, Daisy came out of the house and two rows of brass buttons on her dress gleamed in the sunlight. That's all. What I should have and don't have for you but recommend is Henry James, who throughout will do in half a sentence what some of these authors feel they need a whole paragraph to tell you something about. Some of that uh, is like Hemingway, and some of that is like Fitzgerald. Now, one more moment, and I'll be done. Reluctant to appear to interrogate her, I merely looked her way. Her sensual presence was strong. Perhaps she kept herself on the thin side so it wouldn't be stronger. Or maybe so it would, since her breasts weren't those of an undernourished woman. She wore jeans and a low-cut lacy silk blouse that resembled a little lingerie top. That was a little lingerie top. I realized upon looking again, and wrapping her torso was a longish cardigan with a thick edge of wide ribbing and a tie of the same ribbing at the other end of the spectrum of female apparel from the hospital gown Amy Billette had converted into a dress. The sweater could easily have cost a thousand bucks, and she looked languid wearing it, languid and in enticing repose as though she were wearing a kimono. She spoke rapidly and quietly, as highly complicated people will do, under pressure particularly. Beneath the blazer, this is entirely different and a different woman, beneath the blazer, 
She wore a ribbed black cashmere turtleneck that was also close fitting, as were the dark denim jeans that flared just a bit at the bottom, probably to accommodate the boots. To walk around the apartment, she had put on a pair of flat shoes that looked like ballet slippers. Though the calculation was subtle, she didn't look as if she were necessarily pursuing guileless ends by the way she dressed, or as if she lacked confidence in her power to arouse the admiration of men. Did she care one way or another whether I was as wowed as the others? If not, why had she gotten herself up so appealingly just to go for the groceries and watch the election results? Though maybe any unknown guest would have prompted her to choose to wear something attractive. Now that's a, a wonderful, endless passage about uh, the effect of what somebody wears. Same, I mean, it's another woman getting dressed, only it's the man thinking, Goodness, look at the way she looks. This whole subject, that is, uh, descriptions of clothes in novels or in all of fiction, is all part of the book I'm writing that includes Homer and goes all the way up to uh, whoever is writing books at the time I finish, which may be some <laughs> while off. So thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.